Okay, cool. We're live today. I'm joined by Jeremy Horowitz, who is the head of marketing at Dasty and father of Messenger Masterminds. Jeremy, give everyone an intro. I'm sure we're <clears throat> pretty well connected at this point, but for those who don't know, what's your background in e-commerce and your story to date? Definitely. Well, first, thank you for having me, Adam. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the Messenger Mastermind podcast and getting into email personalization. So I'm super pumped to talk today about all the crazy different landscape of e-commerce I'm sure we'll dive into. So the short version of my background, I started off working at a SaaS app. We were actually doing social media. So think like a hybrid of 460 and Taboola. Way back in the day, um, we actually picked up a client who was, the brand was called Lumi. They were making a lighted cell phone case that if you wanted to take selfies and photos out in public on your phone, they essentially gave you a really bright spotlight. I helped them migrate from WooCommerce to Shopify back when Shopify was about 250,000 merchants on the platform, which is just crazy to think about. We thought that was big then. Um, Stayed at that company for a while, eventually actually transitioned to go in-house at Lumi where I was their e-commerce manager. So I ran their Shopify Plus as well as their Amazon business, did a lot on the digital marketing side, helped that brand scale from, um, let's just, so let's put it this way. When I joined, we were on Shopify and Amazon. By the time I left, they were retailed in Target, Apple, Best Buy, Verizon, Sprint, and a bunch of other large retailers internationally. Um, from there, I did some consulting and some freelancing for a while, and then now have recently joined Dasty about it. Well, actually, a year ago. I guess it's not that recent. Um, but right now, basically, I am working with a really smart team, helping brands better understand their data and better use their data. And so we're working with brands probably from about four to five million in top line a year all the way up to billions, better understand how their business is performing, better understand where are the opportunities that are going to unlock that massive growth and improve everything that they're already doing. Good stuff. Oh. <laughs> and also on the side, I host the Messenger Mastermind podcast. Uh, which we just hit 120 episodes covering marketing tactics, latest strategies in e-commerce, how you can grow your brand, uh, especially focus on the Shopify side of things. And by far the slickest podcast I've ever been invited on to. So well done with thank that. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, let me touch on a point actually, because you said you, you were the e-commerce manager. Like before we go into some of the more granular things, what was your favorite part about having that like, I suppose there's a lot of all-encompassing things that go into that. Like, did you enjoy CRO, um, email? Like, what specific channel was the most interesting to you? Yeah, so it's a great question. And it's also funny that that trajectory was kind of, I started managing the website and doing CRO, and then I picked up email, and I picked up a lot of other marketing. Um, I would say, honestly, it was the customer feedback part. So outside of that, to improve all of those things and kind of in a zero and email mindset, we did a lot of research, we did a lot of surveys, we did a lot of customer interviews. And I always just really enjoyed it because it was that like, that's why we're seeing this and this all over these other places. And so my one recommendation, just to let's start off hot, the one thing not enough companies are doing are actually talking. And I mean like literally like this, like talking to their customers. And especially now where everyone is comfortable with Zoom, there are really no yeah. more excuses anymore. Like spending maybe two hours a week and doing 15 minute inter 15 to 30 minute true customer interviews, like call them up, have some questions prepared, tackle whatever is like a top priority for you. It will be incredibly insightful and it's easily the greatest return on your time in that whatever it is. You can do an hour, you can do two hours a week. 
but it, it changed the entire trajectory of how we ran the business just by getting that feedback. And so while I love, we can get into CRO, we get into, we even A-B tested button colors at one point, uh, love email, I loved all of it, but really like that interaction with customers was definitely my favorite part at working at a brand. Yeah, completely agree. Just going back to the, the most fundamental parts of just speaking to customers. Where did you use the start then? Was this a case of like someone leaves a bad review and you'll go in and speak to them or someone has a great experience? Like where would you begin to look for these touch points to get that customer feedback? Yeah, so that's a great, that's a great, great question. So there's a couple of triggers that would then go to the customer feedback. So either our customer support team was just like, hey, we're seeing a high frequency of tickets about this topic. Why is this happening? What's going yeah. on? And then, yeah, reviews are an incredible place to start. Social media, I mean, everybody is just for free willing to share their intimate thoughts with you today, which is just ironic because like 10 years ago, you didn't pay a lot of money to get that type of insight. Um, and then honestly, just looking at the data, like if it's something about the website, if it's something about email specifically or really any channel, it's looking at the data and kind of asking like, why are, why does the data look this way and why are we seeing things map out in this specific pattern? And then really like a good built out program is a combination of all of those three things, right? So there's something that we want to improve. And then we're looking at all of the qualitative feedback, the customer support, the reviews, the social media feedback, and the data to triangulate exactly what's happening and then yep. formulate the solution to fit into that gap. 100% agree with you. Nisha, looking very much forward to this talk. Thank you very much. Awesome job, Jeremy. We're off Thank you, up. thank you. Okay, so let's go a little bit over the more data side of things and especially as it relates to your current role at the moment. What do you think e-commerce brands should be focused on when it comes to metrics for healthy growth today? Yeah, so number one, and a lot of things stem from this, so this is why I think it's so important, is what's called net contribution margin. So I know everybody hates math, but bear with me for one second. Okay, so if your top line sales and then minus your discounts, refunds, returns, your product costs and your marketing costs. So essentially it's how much cash is the business collecting after everything it costs you to sell a physical product. Yep. And if you ever raise money or you listen to shows like Shark Tank and all those types of things, you'll always hear the, the term unit economics. That, that metric is what they mean. Because essentially what you, right, as complicated as we want e-commerce to be, it comes down to two things. Can we get product in the door and can we get product out the door? And so you really need to track what are your costs and how much does it get to get product in? And then what does it cost to get product out, right? You can flex on offices and team and tools and resources and all of those kind of more general costs, but to really understand how much you can grow and how quickly you can grow your business, you really need to understand what that net contribution margin is because then it's just, I mean, I'm gonna oversimplify this, but then it's just math, right? We know that we have X number of products coming in. We know that we have these roughly marketing performance numbers that we can expect. And then how, how can we scale that up? And then as we grow the revenue of the business, how does that impact it? Because the higher that your net contribution margin is, the more cash is in the business to go and invest in more marketing, to invest in more product, to hire more team, where the best business in the world don't need to raise money because they obsessively focus on that metric. And it grows enough that they can just cycle the cash back into the business in a healthy manner. With that being said, what do you think are some of the most over-focused on areas that aren't really relevant, perhaps? 
Oh, ooh, that aren't relevant. I don't know that they aren't relevant, but I think people obsess way too much about return on ad spend and way too much about conversion rate. Um, to be honest, the businesses that I see really take off and grow the fastest really care about their average order value actually instead of their conversion rate. And I'm not saying conversion rate doesn't matter at all, right? If you have a 0% conversion rate, there are some fundamental problems that you should look into in your business. But if you're, if you're at that point where you're looking for incremental gains and like, how can we get a little bit better? Bumping your AOV by 10% will have a probably five to 10 X impact on your business versus bumping your conversion rate by the same amount, just because of how many more dollars you're putting into the business every time that you spend an ad dollar. And so, right, when we think about the net contribution margin, like just going back to like the holistic number, because I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they obsess about their conversion rate, which then they go spend more money. And so you're just spending more money to acquire more customers, which is always going to get more expensive. I haven't seen, yep. maybe there are a couple businesses out there who really hit like incredible word of mouth and affiliate where they really could turn around for everybody, for the normal average business, your CAC is going to go up over time. So you can continue to optimize your conversion rate, but then that just means you're, you're optimizing a metric to spend more money. Whereas if you optimize your average order value, you're putting more profits back into the business. And most likely to optimize your average order value, you're also selling more units. And if you sell more units, that reduces your warehousing costs. You can probably get better economies of scale from producing your product as well. And so it's really important to think that way. And then ROAS. I mean, I just think like, and we were kind of talking about this before this, like the obsession with single channel attribution and the obsession of like, I need to get X number of dollars back today versus what I laid out in advertising. There are equations and you do wanna track that, but what's way more important to focus on is either your CAC, your customer acquisition costs, or either the sum of all of your marketing costs that it takes to acquire that customer, or what's called your cost per order. So essentially it's just your total marketing spend divided by the total number of orders during that time of purchase. And why, why I think that's really important where I've come to really adopt CPO more is because like everybody's obsessed with CPAs and that just assume like if you judge your entire business based off of that, that means that you assume that your retention marketing costs are zero dollars. Yeah. And I don't know. I personally don't know any business that, well, let me put it this way. I, I don't know any business that has repeat customers that has zero re retention marketing costs. And so thinking about that holistically, I think helps a lot of brands focus on like a more of a per unit and per customer basis. So we want to go and make a million more dollars this year, which means we need to acquire 10,000 more customers. And then what are our marketing costs? What are our marketing costs based on our margin need to be that we can actually afford to go do those things? Because once you have that frame of reference, then one, you can figure out if you can do it or not. It's pretty important, pretty important. And then two, you figure out like how you need to orient your strategy. Do you need to go get outside money? Do you need to think of something differently? Does a tactic need to change to hit those numbers versus constantly being obsessed if you hit a 3x row as on your revenue goal and not caring at all about if there's any profit on the back end of all of those sales? It's funny, isn't it? There's so much uh, discussion and arguments and debates going on on LinkedIn at the moment, especially like which metrics matter, which ones don't, which ones are sort of um, just put on a pedestal. But yeah, it's the ROAS one in particular. I think a lot of people are coming around. It's not the be all and end all. And especially I think with the way 
the arts landscape is changing. Uh, people are taking a completely different perspective on it. The question from Wyan, it's an interesting metric and I love it. I assume he's talking about uh, net contribution margin. I've worked with an e-commerce brand, sports apparel, that's had to raise their prices to get a better return. And in doing this, chase their buyers away as the products became too expensive. More, more expensive co compared to the Nikes and Adidas out there. So, I mean, you want to dive into that? Because that's a, it's an interesting point. Let me, let me break it down two ways. So you're talking about price raises, which is one tactic to increase AOV. And then you're looking at it for a better return on, I'm assuming, ad spend and just in general. There are many, many levers to increase your AOV. Pricing is honestly one of the ones I use the least frequently, to be perfectly honest. Price hikes are hard and they usually, it takes, you usually have to put a long time in between each time you adjust your pricing. And yeah, customers are just way too aware. My recommendation, if I would have in that situation, is focus on your units per order. How many units can you sell in that same order? And how many can you move more? Because yes, right, I mean, if we just charge more and we can sell the same amount and our marketing costs are the same, we'll also make more money. But it's way easier, especially if you have a product catalog, I mean, at this point in time, if you're in e-commerce, your product catalog should support either a volume upsell. So your coffee, skincare, CPG, like classic cheap CPG, where you can just buy more of it, or you should have a cross sell, like a classic boots and belt jacket and t-shirt, like mm -hmm. something in that realm that naturally fits because those levers are actually going to be easiest to push. And then... Also, if you think about it, if you're truly building a brand, you want to own whatever it is that's relevant to your customers that you live in. So like when I worked at the phone case company, our, our goal was to own our customer's purse, right? Our core customer was like 18 to 35, maybe a little bit younger woman. She was buying our case because she was going out at night and wanted to look good. So our entire focus would be like, how many more products can we sell that she can toss in her purse in that experience and in that life moment? And so it led to rings and it led to power chargers. And while none of these things sound sexy, it's that hero product, the phone case that brings people in. And then we were charging like, I don't know, I think it was like 60 to 90% margins on those accessory products. We didn't need to sell a lot, but by attaching a, I think it was like a $70 phone case and a $20 ring, our profits went up incredibly by attaching that $20 ring because it was a super high high margin. And then when you took in all of our product costs and all of our marketing costs, that incremental margin was like a 30 to 50% boost on our net contribution margin where it, right. It doesn't seem like a big deal. You're adding a $20 item. It's no, it's what I call a no brainer add on. And every, every brand should be thinking about that. And also we want to dive into the CRO slash email perspective. The great way, the greatest way to execute that is if you have an Ajax or a sliding cart, when someone's reviewing their checkout, yeah. right below that, you say like, here's a preferred offer just for you or staff pick, or you can come up with whatever creative branding for the text, but basically just present them with that product. It's supposed to be not expensive to them and really simple to understand. One click, they add it to their cart. Um, I'll take checks in the mail for royalties forever deploys that because it every brand that I've ever seen deploy it, it works. It just creates so much more profit. And it inadvertently, it gives you more revenue bandwidth to go spend more money so that you're not as concerned about your ROAS and all of these other things. And so I think that 
I think a lot of people mistake raising AOV for just raising prices. There are mm -hmm. many, many levers that you can do to raise AOV. And I would actually put prices at the, adjusting prices at the bottom of that list. Very interesting. And what you mentioned before, like the in-calls upsell, are you using an app or a plugin to do this normally? So, I mean, back in the day, we custom built this into the website. Now I know that there are a bunch of apps. The one I'm most familiar with is Rebuy Engine, and they do a lot across the site as well. Um, but just because we're on a, we're also email and SMS. If somebody buys just your hero product, doesn't buy those, don't, doesn't take anything on site. One of the easiest things is what we call like an order bump or the post-purchase yep. profit booster. And I'm sure Adam, like, I know we've talked about this before, but like, right. Yep. I'm immediately following the order. Here's a crazy offer to add to your order. You have, I don't know, two hours before we ship out your product to take us up on it, route them back. If you can cover the shipping costs so they don't have to pay it twice, more people will take it. You should structure the offer around super high margin products. And then that way you're using your email and your SMS as a net to feed back into that same cycle. And again, I'll take royalty checks in the mail. I'll, uh, I'll drop my info later. I think we've done that with pretty much everybody we've worked with in the last two years. And I think on average, it obviously depends. Like you need to get the offer right, like you mentioned before, but we're seeing like a one to three percent increase in monthly revenue just off that single uh, post purchase, like order bump upsell. So it's it's pretty much ubiquitous across the board. It's worked for us, depend like irrespective of what brands we've implemented it with. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of testing that goes into it, but definitely the tactic always the tactic always works if enough testing and like you really figure out what it is. And yeah, I mean, I know one, and this is also another thing. Like, I know one to three percent doesn't sound like a lot of money, but right. when it's over time, yeah, yeah, and when it's pure profit and you don't have to spend any marketing dollars to get that one to three yeah. percent, it it really goes back to profit. It really goes back into the profit center that then just fuels the business again, kind of like rocket fuel. Yeah, and I think especially if you look at the, the customer acquisition costs these days, it, it makes, in my opinion, like it more crucial to go in and just try that on the first sale. Some people say like it's not the best customer experience, but I think if you strategically place it and get the offer right, that it's a no-brainer to the customer, then why not? If they're taking you up on the offer and you're not seeing like horrible unsubscribes, for me, it's just a no-brainer. Yeah, it's only a bad, it's only a bad UX if it's a bad offer. Nobody exactly. has ever been upset that a great offer landed in their lap. Like you should structure it and the customer should take away that they, they should feel like they took advantage of you. Like the offer should appear that good that it's like, oh my God, these guys are going out of business. This is amazing. But really you're just putting cash right back into the business and moving a lot of product. And yeah, like that that's always my one feedback is everybody says, oh, it's too aggressive. Oh, it's too much. And then everyone who deploys it always goes, I cannot believe I never, I never, I can't believe I ever thought that this was a bad idea. I agree. It works. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the most, um, sorry, what are the commonalities that you're seeing, like the merchants that are using Dacity at the moment as well? What are the <clears throat> key points that join all these companies together that's making them successful today? Yeah. So I'm going to get the obvious one out of the way first, just because... I mean, they come to us for data. So they, they really leverage their data and intelligently. And I know I'm being a little flippant, but I really do mean that like they aren't just shooting from the hip and like kind of that old trust your gut. They're at least using data to make more informed decisions and then gear their teams because a lot of the brands that we work with and where we kind of join the journey 
is when they're building out a team and they need to get a lot of people on the same page really quickly because that leads into my second thing. They just move so quickly. Like it's, it always astounds me because I like to think that I move quickly. And I think I like to think that I roll out a lot like in a quick manner because testing is so important, but they, they have this incredible ability to just like, okay, here are the list of customer problems. Here are the list of things that we think will work. How can we just most effectively and quickly test and iterate as many of these ideas as possible? And it's, it's very much like a scientific way of the old, like just throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. But they really have that good balance of it quickly testing and then using the data to be like, okay, like kill this, invest in that, kill this, invest in that. And it's, that's what's allowed them to take that big jump in marketing where they can spend a lot more. It's what's allowed them to put in that other email flow that then is what creates that incremental revenue that opens up the next big, like the, that opens up the next big area where they can go, okay, we can cycle more revenue into this or that. And then I would say the third piece is they, they do a really incredible job of owning their space. And so all of the brands that immediately come to mind, like they have the one hero product and they have the one thing that like, oh, okay, I know that brand because they make this, but then at least the brands I'm seeing today that really take off are like, okay, this, this is the one thing that we own. And then this is the ecosystem of products that our customer will probably buy from us considering they like that core product. And sometimes those secondary products become their new biggest products and their massive extensions for them. And sometimes those products are just add-ons and things that people use in those kind of cart boosters and AOV boosting strategies. But they really, really have that down as well, where it's, you're not confused by what they sell, like they are a home or a bathroom or a food or a whatever niche, they not niche, but market they play in. But then they really rapidly expand and just offer as many products that make sense for their customer. And they just quickly, quickly test, here's what works, here's what doesn't work, kill off what doesn't work, and then really like double, triple, quadruple down into the areas that are working. Completely agree with you. There's a lot to be said for speed of rolling um, <clears throat> this type of stuff out. And like you said, just iterating on it as quickly as possible to come to conclusions. Helps as well, obviously, when you do work with a much bigger store that has a lot of data. So those tests can conclude more quickly, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's always the struggle. And so there definitely is, like, if you want to... Let me put it this way. We're not in a science lab, so you don't have to hit statistical significance, right? Like the way that I've always viewed this is the data should just inform what you're thinking already. So what I recommend, especially the smaller brands, and this is always what I've done when we just have smaller data sets and we're not a, we're not a massive brand for a lot of data, is just run it long enough until you feel comfortable with the results. Mm -hmm. Like you don't need to have a perfectly scientific method and everything super budgeted out immediately and run a test until you hit 20% or 80%, whatever confidence interval you want to hit or 20% of population, 80% confidence interval. But what you really need to focus on is just what's enough feedback that now my strategy or my hypothesis is more informed because you do have enough data to get some semblance. Right, like if I throw up a website tomorrow and I spend 10 grand on Facebook ads next month and I don't see a single dollar in sales, that is data <laughs> that, that shows me that this may or this probably isn't working. And right, and so I can I can go higher up the funnel and I can look at my CPCs, I can look at my site traffic, I can see how far people get down the funnel. And 
I mean, if I'm spending 10 grand on Facebook today, that doesn't get me quite as far as it used to, but I'll at least be able to have some semblance of like, okay, I'm not so confident in this anymore. Maybe I should shift and maybe I should pivot. And then, yeah, once you become a larger brand and once you have larger data sets, it's really just more of a speed thing, to be honest. Like you just get that data back faster so you can make decisions faster. But I would say also when you're smaller, it's a lot more based on your gut and your intuition. And then data is just a small feedback point. When you're larger and you're managing a team of people, it's really more, the data is really more to align the team to have a common language a common understanding of what's going on so that everybody works towards the same goals and data helps them just figure that out. I know obviously we sort of answered this like speeds was very important, but would you say a culture of testing within the organization as well? Like never just getting complacent and going like that's the way it is, like constantly looking at areas of the business and testing them, coming up with hypothesis, like you said, and finding out what the best is. Yeah, definitely. Because I think I another like subcultural piece of that that really helps a lot of these just organizations in general thrive is that once you move to a hypothesis testing and you kind of put yourself out there of like this is the thought i have but you frame it as like a this is a testable idea that we can get feedback on a lot of the ego and a lot of the politics and other pieces of that that can emerge in some organizations tends to go away because like just putting your thought into the hypothesis format of like, if this is true, then this happens kind of humbles yourself, right? Like you're, you're automatically accepting that your idea could potentially be wrong. And the brands that I see that absolutely are like just growing quickly, profitably, like all of those metrics that you want to see from a brand, they actually don't really care if they're right or wrong. Like the individual, the person who's running the tests, like to them, they're more of just like a train operator. Like their job is just to get as many tests out as po as possible and to figure out how to do that as efficiently as possible, whether it's their idea, whether it's a teammate's idea, whether it's a customer idea. It honestly, I mean, in theory, I'm sure it matters to everybody, but in theory, like those people don't seem to be wrapped up in it and it doesn't seem to stop them versus more of just like being an operator and figuring out how to run that cycle, run that process in that cycle. Because then it's just, what are the best ideas that we can come up with as an entire organization? And I mean that both internally and externally, and then just whatever wins, wins. And I mean, at the end of the day, people, people may, people may say they don't love winning, but everybody loves winning. If, I mean, it just feels, it feels good to like, Hey, we did this. And then everybody also has those tests of the like, we hated this idea. We thought it was gonna be so dumb. It was never gonna work. Now it's our core business strategy and it's what we do yeah. all the time. And like a lot of businesses, like you, you can look at hundred thousand year old business, not thousand years, I don't know that many old, but hundreds of years old businesses, a lot of them kind of just stumbled into their success. And so I think like if you just have that testing philosophy always in mind, it, it opens up your landscape to be so much broader of like, yeah, you could be in markets that you didn't even think you were going to be in because company figured out how to reposition X, Y, Z. Let me ask you something. Actually, do you think politics get in the way of a company once it hits a certain size and they sort of lose that culture of testing? In my experience working with people, the bigger the company gets, sometimes the less nimble and receptive they are to running like these types of tests because the politics gets in the way and the egos of the employees. Have you noticed this yourself? Yeah, so I would say that, that that's where you see a lot of companies skyrocket early and then plateau or decline later is yeah. 
or they get, it's either that or they get complacent. And honestly, I kind of put those two things together. Like if you stop testing, you're kind of automatically getting complacent, but yeah, like it's, it's a never ending process. Obviously the larger your organization, the more people you're working with, the harder that becomes and the yeah. harder it becomes to do quickly. But that's why, that's why I like, that was my first thing. Like speed really matters. And it's, it's a little counterintuitive, but it's actually the bigger you grow and the more resources you have, the harder it is to actually run those tests yeah. at the same velocity. Um, but that really goes back to like the culture of the team and also the process that's been built because there is a sweet spot where you can, you have more people, but you also have more resources to dedicate to testing. So if they're good operators and the company really like cycles through everything, then they can just plug everything through. There's a, a reporting system already pre-built into the company that people know when and how to check it. And it just becomes a smooth running process in this train that for the companies that we've really seen be able to really, really scale, they usually have to go through a couple of inflection points. And that's a big one, especially when we get into that nine, 10 figure in sales a year range. And I think this is applicable as well to B2B. I think this is one of the things that being cautious of for ourselves, like the more productized we became in certain areas, you don't want to lose that culture of innovation. And I think when I was on your podcast, I was talking about like the segment based welcome flows. We never had to do that, but I just thought that should be done in that specific way. So we obviously like wants to test it and see how it plays out in real time. Um, but yeah, the, in my experience, the bigger the company that you work with, at least that we go into and work with, the less receptive they are to trying new things. But yeah, I think that's a, more of a political discussion. Uh, okay, so yeah, shifting gears a little bit. Obviously, we've had some massive news in the last week that's going to um, affect me in particular and like the email side of things. I know Facebook ads had their hit a few months ago. How do you think the landscape is going to change in the next few months? Like, who do you see being the winners and the losers from the new iOS updates? Ooh, that's such a great way to frame this. Okay, so I'm gonna just a little preamble before I dive into your answer. Yes, it sucks. Yes, we're losing stuff. No, it's not the end of the world. We'll get through this. Marketers have existed for hundreds of years before they could track email open rates. We'll be fine. It's just some things that we got to change. So with that frame in reference, the winners, the winners are really going to figure out how they can correlate engagement and not use open rate as that metric anymore. So they're going to look for just other areas and signals of intent that can be an email that can be things like clicks and obviously tracking unsubscribes, which you should hopefully you've been doing no matter what, like regardless of iOS 15 and then other things like on-site engagement, are they interacting with customer service? Where are they leaving reviews? Where have they returned products recently? There are a long list of other data points that you can look at outside of just that short list that you'll have a, a good frame of reference. And so I think another piece of that kind of where this leads into is over the past like three to four years, I spent a lot of time studying what direct mail marketers did. Cause like, let's be honest, the writing on the wall here for quite some time, GDPR was three years ago at this point yeah. and privacy has been a huge conversation for a long time. So like this has been a slow, gradual shift here. It's not like all, of, I mean, I know iOS 15 came out of nowhere, but like the overall trend is pretty similar. So basically direct mail is, I think email and direct mail are going to become more alike where it's just a digital faster version of it, right? Like for 40, 50 years, people were selling spending tons of money to ship marketing 
to customers with no idea what they did with it. Did they open it? Did they throw yeah. it away? Was it complete crap? But there is a good testing mentality behind that as well of with incremental tests and lift tests and different type of discount codes and different types of call to actions. And it's gonna it's gonna be a little bit slower, right? Like the data isn't gonna come in as fast, and that has that's gonna hurt. Like I know a lot of companies, and we just talked about how quick important speed is. Like this is gonna slow things down a little bit. But I think the companies that do those two things and then use data enrichment really intelligently. And so what I mean by data enrichment is collect all of that data from all of those different places and then push it into their marketing channels. So push it into their e email provider, push it into their ad platforms, SMS, all of those other channels, because the same signals of intent are gonna exist across all channels and great brands know how to just move their customer along their journey in any channel possible. And they, if, when they do it well, it's coordinated across all of them. So location, losing location-based stuff hurts, losing open rates. I mean, that was, that was, that used to be a core metric that we used to measure engagement. And that really helped us also inform our content strategy. So yeah. that's gonna be a big piece. The losers are just gonna like, just not do anything. They're just gonna complain and they're just gonna keep pounding you with the same messaging and with the same offers and the same kind of stuff that they should honestly shouldn't have been doing before all of this. Like, right, like you wanna have good engaging content you want to have good calls to action. You want to make it, you want to make me as a customer seem like I'm the specialist boy in the whole world. And so it's going to be really important just to keep doing that. The people who kind of just stick their heads in the sand and just say, we're going to do email the same way we've always done is, is just going to be really tough. And then I think the third piece is what I'm, my hope here is that small brands have something that's going to help support them because they're the ones actually at the greatest disadvantage. Like, I, Apple can talk all about how they are. They're protecting consumer privacy and they're hurting the big guys. The big guys will be fine. The big guys can pay for data enrichment and third-party data and all these other things to support them. It's the smaller players that are actually going to be more hurt by this because they don't yep. have access to that and they don't have the resources. So I hope that there is something built in here or some sort of playbook that we can figure out how the people who are getting started early and growing their businesses have something else to understand. Do my customers care about this? Because when your email list is a hundred, a thousand, even 10,000 people sending any given email, it's hard to tell through clicks and purchases, whether that actually did anything or not. Like it's just, you're small, it's too early. And so I hope, I mean, there's things like UTM tracking and all of those other like just tried and true stuff that you should be doing anyway. But yeah, my hope is, is that everybody moves to data enrichment. Everybody moves to just thinking of more creative marketing and really testing yeah. mindset. And then there's something new built that will replace open rates as our signal of intent or signal of engagement. Completely, I can't disagree with a single thing you said. And ultimately we're just gonna have to find new ways to measure engagement. Um, Rod says, agree with the comparison of direct mail v email. Segmentation is going to become way more important in email as the cost to send increases, cost being potential damage to sender reputation. This is my biggest worry as well. It's that a lot of people said, you know, email open rates are a vanity metric, but ultimately if you keep sending to unengaged people and you have no idea that they're unengaged, then this is gonna harm your deliverability. And conversely, it might be interesting, Jeremy, because you said like the big brands might be fine, but 
if the big brands are sending to huge lists of unengaged people, and I know they're pretty bad for this anyway, but let's assume like hardly any people are opening the emails. Like they, they could see email as a huge cost without knowing the ROI because the ISPs might all of a sudden say like they're huge spammers because they're just constantly sending huge volumes of mail out. So wishful thinking, but maybe the smaller brands have the upper hand here. Yeah, definitely. I also love this point from Rod. So I put this as a feature request on the Clavio probably like four years ago. Having a deliverability score in your ESP, I think will be a game changer here. And I, I couldn't agree with this more because like, even when we had open rates, I always wanted to know like, cool, okay, my open rate was 30% for this email, 15% that feel on 10 for that one. Like, are we in a better or worse shape here? Like are, are our emails going in the inbox, the spam folder or promo folder? And so I know that there's a lot of disparate data sources and you got different players in different sections of it that need to either work together or someone needs to be creative. But yeah, I mean, I hope there is some sort of thing like a deliverability score or some indication of how your deliverability is performing. Um, like we currently use HubSpot at one of the companies I work for and they even tell us like, hey, here's your email list health. And like, these are some things that you want to think about to improve the overall health. And so it doesn't necessarily need to specifically be like one out of a hundred and you're at a 70 or whatever, but just something to indicate it because yeah, I do, I do agree. The smaller brands will be way more creative. And so I think that they'll, they may not need the data because they'll just go on intuition, but it's really that in-between phase of like, you've grown yeah. out of being a small brand and now you have to figure out how to become a big one, that that's where you really, really rely on the data, that it's going to be an interesting gap, but it's going to be, it's going to be a fun six months to figure out what everybody does. I think, like you said, the ESPs have got a lot to lose from this. So I think the onus is going to shift to them, like how they can support the merchants as well, whether that's by pre-building recommended segments to send to in replace of general open rate engagements. Like they're going to have to pull their weight here and help the senders because ultimately if their shared servers too get a bad reputation because people have no idea about the sends and practices, then this is going to reflect really badly on them. Yeah, 100%. And open rate was, at least from what I'm familiar with, open rate was basically the metric that all of the ESPs were saying, track this so that your deliverability yeah. isn't terrible. And now they've lost that. So yeah, I'm, I cannot imagine that all of those teams aren't day and night working on some sort of solution for this already. And it'll be interesting to see what people actually adopt, because I think there will probably be a couple of different flavors to how this information is presented. And then right at the end of the day, it's what's understandable for the team, what do we use to keep driving community engagement, and then what eventually is gonna drive revenue. Yeah, interesting times on the horizon, we shall see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's always fun. Like these are the these are the opportunities. These are where opportunities are created. Like yeah. in these spaces where so many people are going to have to shift their strategy, the innovative brands are going to jump way ahead of everybody else, and everybody else will either follow or create their own recipe. And I'm excited. I always love like finding out like what are the new cool things that people are doing. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to differentiate yourself and like stand out from the rest. And, you know, ultimately, I think we were going in this direction, like you said, in relation to GDPR. So even though it's a shock always when the change comes, I think at the end of the day, like it was going in one direction. So, yeah, let's just see what happens. Cool. Um, shifting gears a little bit. We sorry, I was on your podcast a few weeks ago and 
personally for me it was the best podcast i've been invited to i think like the way you onboarded me like presented the questions how smooth it was so i would personally like to know like obviously i assume there's been a lot of trial and error for you to get that <laughs> format uh, what's your best advice for someone because there's huge amounts of content marketing on linkedin now in the b2b space lots of people including myself like wanted to start a podcast for a while like where's the best place to start and any just general advice that you have for making a successful podcast yeah sure so after 120 episodes we've definitely plowed the field with our face quite a bit and learned a lot of lessons the hard way there um some great advice that we were given is one start as quickly as possible uh, 90% of the lessons that you're going to get are going to come in the first three months. The first one in that is, do you actually want to keep doing this or not? Cause, yep. uh, it's fun and I really enjoy it, but we've been doing it now since 2018. It's, it's a, it's a long game. Like you don't get a lot of results early. It's that classic content play of like early is really, really, really small results. And then it compounds over time. So definitely just get started as early as possible. Um, pick the style of show that you want to have. I think a lot of people get really excited and then just jump into a podcast and um, don't necessarily think through like, is this going to be an interview format? Is this going to be host sharing? Is this going to be storytelling framework? Um, and you're not beholden to anything like messenger mastermind. We didn't, we actually intentionally didn't invite anybody on the show for the, for a long time when we originally started, because we originally wanted the original concept of the show was that it was going to be, like three guys running marketing at e-commerce companies and you're going to get the inside look and the inside tactics into their, like their strategies, their tests, their business. But then about a year or two in, we were like, well, all these other people have incredible ideas and are doing all these other incredible testings, like why we invited you on. And so we pivoted to an interview style. So like, yep. you're, you're not married to whatever you start with, but in that same concept, like just get something up quickly, get testing, get some just like feedback and information. And then the third piece, and this was actually a really great piece of feedback from someone who had previously launched a podcast, is launch with a bunch of content. Like we launched, we intentionally, we started recording, but we intentionally batched our first five episodes together and then started releasing weekly or bi-weekly. I don't remember exactly where our cadence was back then. But essentially what that does is it gives all the algorithms like more juice because people will listen to multiple episodes. And if they get excited and listen to a lot very quickly, then there's a little bit of a, like a skyrocket effect of, oh, this must be interesting. Let's show it to more people. Um, and then also it just, I think it does a good job of putting you as the podcast recorder into the seat and just recording more because at the end of the day, that's really all it is. Like some episodes are going to be good. Some episodes are not. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the, again, the weirdest thing is that sometimes the episodes that you think are the most interesting and the best don't resonate at yeah. all. And the episodes that you were like, oh my God, did we really put that out? End up being the most popular and the ones that people like come up to you and be like, hey, I heard you guys like talk about this and I loved it and we did that. And we were like, oh man, I'm kind of embarrassed that people even know about that. So I yeah. think that's the other thing is like, just get it live quickly, pick your first style and format. And then eventually as you get into it, you start watching what other people do. Hopefully you do guest on other people's podcasts and you see how they do it. And that's where a lot of the process has been refined over time is we just I, I like to think of it as a, an homage to all the other great podcast hosts and interviewers that are out there that we've just, I've been really impressed the way that we, they did it. And it's like, how can we do this for us? And we've just kind of Frankenstein a lot of different pieces of how other people do their podcasts to get where we are today. 
sounds like ultimately just get started figure out what you're most comfortable with if you actually want to do it like you said because i think for me i noticed like i I've, th this is actually like the first linkedin live i've did after like three week break i go through stages i don't know if you feel the same way where you just need a mental break like i noticed every 10 or so and like i need to just step off the gas a little bit with this and like mentally recoup because i found the commitment to constantly create the content, especially on video or, or voice as well with, with podcasts, is like quite like really intense for the like 30 to 45 minutes, as enjoyable as it is. Yeah. And so we yeah, we went through the exact same problem. And there's actually a little bit of a gap in our podcast, like way back in the day, because we didn't we hadn't figured that out yet. But um, one, you already have a podcast. If you record these, these are awesome podcast episodes to release kind of after the live event. So you may already have your idea, but yeah, that's also another piece of it is like you eventually will start, once you get started, you'll figure it out. You figure out how you like to record, you figure out how you like to go through the process where now we have everything a lot more dialed in of like, I'm not recording like four times a week, every week. I'm recording a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. And yeah, from like the host perspective, it makes it a lot easier. And for everyone who's still listening, like this isn't just for B2B. We have, I know I work with plenty of brands that record a consumer facing podcast for their yeah. audience. And it's an incredible community building vehicle for them. Um, and it, like their fans are obsessed with it. Like it is, <laughs> it is nuts how much people listen to this podcast. Um, what but, brands are you seeing are doing a good job with that? Is there any that spring to mind? Yeah, so so my, my partners who uh, co-host the podcast with me, they run a business called Constantly Varied Gear. Um, they do, I mean, we started the podcast together. So of course, I'm big fans of them. I think they're doing a lot of incredible things. But they launched the Thick Thives Save Lives podcast, um, where it's just two people who work on the team. They occasionally like bring other people in and to talk about stuff. But it's just like they just talk to directly to as, as if they're talking directly to their audience and their audience eats it up. It's great email content. They put it in their mobile app. They put it in a whole bunch of other stuff. And so it's a channel that I don't see a lot of no brands and really very few brands invest in the organic podcast. I see everybody spending money on podcasts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, nobody's in the organic side, but there's not a return. Like you're not going to see X dollars convert tomorrow but their retention rates and their re repeat customer rates just are going up and up and up. And it's just an incredible vehicle for them to just have another free touch point with their customers that their customers absolutely love and just continue to bring people into the tribe. You know, I, I think that speaks to a wider message in marketing. You said like, you, you know, the direct sort of attribution to revenue. I think a lot of the like community building things, people get lost in the process of like trying to, tie it to sales or like leads whether it's b2b or e-commerce and they lose the whole purpose behind why they should start doing it and why they should start like trying to connect with the customers do you not feel the same way a hundred percent and the the ones that are the brands that you just see that absolutely take off and just like you're like what happened there actually yeah. just to, to couple their community from their from their brand and what i mean by that is like they run their community as if it's self-sustaining and they don't need any yeah. revenue from it. And the, the brand obviously funds that, but it's not like a, you have to come by, you have to come by, like we're gonna give you some content, you have to come by. It's like, here's a community, connect with each other. We're gonna give you engaging 
content challenges, some other stuff. And we've, we've recently recorded a couple episodes about this as well, but it's really like just investing in that community, like really just putting out as much as you can, that you can afford to do as possible. Yep. And then it'll just naturally transition over where we'll see that customers are selling to new, like brand new prospects in the group. And they're like, oh, you haven't gotten this product yet? Like, it's amazing and I love it. And right, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the game is free sales. <laughs> and yeah. so like, if you, if you can take the, if you have the time horizon to invest in that community early and really build it up, you may do a, some selling and you may do some promotions over time. And there are ways to do that effectively, but the real long-term benefit is once it really grows and once it really scales up, your community is doing your sales, doing your customer support, helping each other out. And there's just a lot of like not easily attributable, but yeah. highly valuable outcomes from doing that. Yeah, the buyer's journey is complex, isn't it? And I think you're just yeah. trying to create as many positive touch points as possible and not becoming obsessed with trying to tie everything back and attribute it to sales. Yeah, and also it just makes your life better. Like if you don't have to just maniacally obsess about the revenue number of every channel, like I live and breathe marketing every day. Like when I can just go and do fun, interesting things and people engage and loving it and the revenue number keeps going up, everybody, like everybody's life gets better. It's not easy to do, but when you're in that situation, it's just how can you just throw as much fuel on that fire as possible? And of course be responsible. Like at the end of the day, make sure that the revenue nets out that it makes sense. But yeah, like not everything you need in marketing that you need to do has to tie back to a specific sales number. Yeah, and I think as you said, it's like the more value you create, you inadvertently just create sales from that anyway. So it's it's more fun to go down that route because you're connecting with the customers, you're finding out more about them and they're buying from you anyway. You're not chasing them, like telling them you have to buy his and offer his and offer his and offer. Yeah. It, yeah, it's a lot more fun. I mean, obviously, if they have a really buttoned up funnel and like yeah. an email program and all those other things. But yeah, once you can kind of step out and do those other things and you don't have to just chase a sale it's it just it's, i think personally it gets a lot more fun also completely agree both for b2c and b2b definitely cool um made tons of um great insights like great knowledge overall um i'm excited to splice this up and send you the clips back but for anyone else who's watching what's the best way to contact you if they've got any questions or maybe if they want to be a guest on the messenger mastermind yeah definitely so i I like to think that I put helpful content out every day on LinkedIn. So that's probably the easiest place to find me um, is Jeremy Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. It's just a big picture of my face. I know it's not the best looking, apologize, but it's the best I could do. Um, and then Messenger Mastermind podcast is on every major podcasting network. It's Messenger Mastermind, um, where you can find great interviews like Adam, where he basically just unveiled the entire strategy of how he sends the best personalized emails and like has automated that into flows. So that was that was like a, that was an interview where I I took copious notes the entire time because it's been a while since I've done that specifically, but it was always a project I wanted to do. Amazing. Well, mate, great to have you on. I'm going to tag you in this. So if anyone's got any questions for Jeremy, feel free to drop them in the comments below. But otherwise, thank you very much for your time, and we will catch up soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Pleasure.